I want to ask you um, to pray for Kelly and I. Uh, we covet your prayers. Uh, this Wednesday, we have the opportunity to get on a plane and go to South Africa for two weeks. Uh, we've been invited by a friend of mine, an old seminary buddy, um, back at Master Seminary, to uh, come over and uh, preach at a series of three shepherds conferences, back-to-back-to-back pastors conferences, and uh, he's invited Kelly to sing as well. And um, when Kelly and I uh, walked down an aisle together, well, I guess she walked down the aisle. I waited for her 19 years ago today, or 29 years ago today. It's the 19th. I'm getting my dates mixed up. Okay, it's May 19th, 29 years ago. We got that straight? I got it right? All right. So, yeah, whatever. Nine, 29 years ago, we walked down the aisle. She walked down the aisle. I met her there. Um, when we committed our lives to serve the Lord together, um, we had no idea what that would look like. But one of the main reasons why I married Kelly was because I knew that no matter what that looked like, she was all in. And that she was a gal, I was convinced she was a gal that would go anywhere and do anything if she knew it's what the Lord wanted us to do. And uh, that's always a safe bet, right? When you're getting married that you make sure that person that you're marrying is all in for Jesus, and uh, that makes for an exciting ride. And so we could have never imagined the Lord bringing us here to Texas and uh, having the opportunity, the privilege of serving here for about 20 years now, and then to, as an extension of our ministry here, to get to travel around the world, which again, we never anticipated that, but the Lord has given us, a, blessed us with a network of friends uh, and, and co-laborers in Christ that we get invited from time to time to uh, do ministry trips like this. And um, just so you know, I think it's important for you to know in light of uh, kind of our budget crunch right now here at Lakeside that this trip is not going to cost the church a dime because uh, the people in South Africa are very generous and they wanted to fly us over there while well, we picked up Kelly's flight personally. But uh, um, the point is, um, when typically when we travel to a, a first world country, they pay our way. When we go to a third world country, and most of the missionaries that we support are serving in Uganda and, and um, India, we pay the way. The church pays the way. This is a way that we invest in those missions, uh, in ministries that are impoverished and can't afford, right, to have people come on their dime. So... It's on our dime as a church, but thankfully, this is a trip this year that is not on the church's dime, and, um, and so there's not going to be any safaris that the church is paying for or anything that, just so you know, um, I think that's important, uh, but we do definitely uh, cover your prayers. The real investment, I think, for our church is um, exporting, right, our resources, and hopefully you see the pastors of the church and the leaders of our church as resources that, that we can invest in other places. It's not always just financial investment, right? It's, it's people investment. And so um, we just see this as an extension of you when we travel because everything that I've ever taught somewhere in another part of the world was first preached here. Um, and so it, it, we forged it together as a church. And so I just, you know, typically... When I get invited somewhere, I just grab and go. I just grab some sermons that I've preached here before, and we go. And, uh, and I feel like I'm taking you with us, um, because I can remember that usually the time when we first preached that particular message, and I'm like, I remember that what we were going through in the series we were in, and it's just kind of a, a surreal experience. I feel like you're packed away in our suitcase, and, and uh, it's kind of a fun thing to do. Now, I did something very stupid this time. Um, well, I'll, I'll get to that. I, just, I did want to say this. There's a fun fact, fun fact, okay? The only message that I've ever, it's always developing sermons here and exporting them there. There's only been one sermon that I developed over there and exported back here. And it was a sermon that after spending a week in India teaching a bunch of Indian pastors about expository preaching, and I was getting on a plane. I was going to be home on Saturday afternoon, evening. And I thought, what am I going to preach the next day? I had no clue. Like, I can't teach our people about expository preaching. I don't need to know how to preach. And I started thinking about, well, what's the obvious 
opposite side of, of preaching. It's, it's listening. And I remember developing this message on just some scraps of paper through the different airports and in the little lounges that I would go in and sit down and I would just be writing this. And, by the, and, and then on a plane, you know, on my laptop. And by the time I landed in Houston, I had this message called, um, I think it was called Preaching for Dummies. And it was the whole idea was, you know, listening for dummies and, you know, the, the, the books there that we all have read, right? Um, and, and, I, that was, and I preached it the next day. And uh, that was the seed for the book Expository Listening. So maybe I should try to develop more sermons on the way back home, right? They might turn into more books. But anyway, typically, uh, that's a rare thing. Um, that's hard to do. Um, but I did do something maybe equally hard. I told Joel, my friend, that I was going to preach a message on some, a subject that I had never taught on before, something I always wanted to teach on. I thought, well, sure, I can, I'll, I'll have plenty of time you know, to do this. And I was getting down to the wire this week, and I thought, man, what, I did, what did I do? I painted myself on a corner. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call him and just say, hey, man, I can't do that message. I'm going to have to pull something different. But there, this passage was just calling my name. And, and I thought, I, I just got to go for it. And so I worked the graveyard shift last night, if you know what that means. Because this was too good to pass up. And so you're my guinea pigs this morning, okay? This is hot off the press, right? And, and this is something that, that uh, the Lord has laid on my heart for a number of years now. And it's a passage that I've gone back to multiple times in the last few years. And uh, I just thought, man, there's a message here. And I just never took the time to unearth it or the way I like to describe it as birth it, right? Uh, the sermons are birthed. Uh, if you're a preacher, you understand what that's like. So I've been in labor for the last few days here. Um, not literally, ladies. I don't want to discredit what you go through, right? Having a baby, right? But uh, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. And I've titled this text, When People Throw Stones, Courage in the Face of Criticism. Let's read this familiar text, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. Then Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you men of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. And Abishai, the son of Zeruai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. But the king said, What, I have, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursings this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. Father, what a truly fascinating story this is. And we all have a love-hate relationship with the Shimeis in our lives. But I pray as we consider 
David's example here that he sets for us, that you would equip us to know how to cope with the criticism that we all face at times in life. We pray this for your honor. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as I've mentioned to you in previous weeks, the pastoral staff has been reading through a book this last year um, by John Piper. It's the book called The Swans Are Not Silent. It's a collection of biographical sketches of godly men from church history who faced all sorts of difficulties and criticisms uh, through their lives and their ministries. And I remember coming across this particular sentence that I found very insightful and very helpful. John Piper said this, receiving and benefiting from criticism is utterly essential to survive and thrive in Christian life and ministry. Let me say that again. Receiving and benefiting from criticism is utterly essential to survive and thrive in Christian life and ministry. Now, by the grace of God, for most of my life and ministry, I have been well thought of and well spoken of by others. Granted, as I'm sure you've experienced from time to time, People have criticized me for something that I said or did or for something that I didn't say or do. And so while I've not been immune to criticism, it's really only been in the last few years that I have received serious, sustained criticism from other people. Now, it's naive for any believer, but especially a pastor, to think that you can avoid a criticism. Anyone who faithfully follows Christ and serves Christ any length of time is bound to face criticism at some point. For most pastors, criticism is their constant companion. The very nature of our calling is to wisely provide vision and direction for God's people, to boldly proclaim God's word, all of which invites criticism and makes us an easy target for critics. And that's why they say being a pastor requires a soft heart and thick skin. I was at the hospital recently to have a surgical procedure done, and they were trying to get the IV in my, what do you call that? Top of my hand, I guess. It's the palm, what's the back of your hand called? Anyway, it was in the back of my hand, and, and they were jabbing around, and the lady said, man, you have thick skin. And I said, it's because I'm a pastor. Yuck, 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 Right? Thankfully, she was a Christian, and so she got the joke. But I think criticism should be listed on every pastor's job description. It just comes with the territory. Yet for me, it's been relatively unfamiliar ter territory until recently. And as I've navigated this sanctifying season, which God sovereignly ordained and providentially orchestrated for my life and ministry, he has graciously and frequently directed me to this passage and used it to minister to my soul and help me learn to cope with ruthless, relentless criticism. Now, paradoxically, God has used ruthless relentless criticism in the form of malicious, slanderous attacks to help me learn this text. In other words, God brought me to the text through malicious, slanderous attacks, but it was through those malicious, slanderous attacks that I started to understand this text. Along with many other texts in Scripture, that I've read and I've studied and even preached from many times in the past, but now can appreciate and relate to in a much deeper, sweeter, and more personal way. This sermon on criticism was birthed and shaped by criticism. In other words, what you're about to hear is not something I learned in seminary but in Christ's school of affliction, which is where a pastor is most often 
best equipped to be useful to others. I could never have fully exposited this passage on criticism had I not ever experienced criticism. I mean, it's one thing to preach through a passage. It's another thing to live through a passage. And so all I know is when I sat down to seriously study this passage, really for the first time, I had read it, meditated on it, but never really seriously dug deep into it. All I can tell you is it flowed. That it just, just, it just came to life. And I wish I could say that that happened more often when I was studying God's word. I feel like many times it's, uh, studying is just sheer survival. I just got to have a sermon ready for Sunday. And so I got to figure out what this next text means and how it applies to my life so I can help you understand what it means and how it applies to your life. And it's just cranking these things out. But there was just something different about this particular text and this particular process of developing this message. I want to begin by defining the kind of criticism that's addressed in this passage and that I want to address in this message and that I want to address with the pastors in South Africa. There's essentially two types of criticism. There's something we're all familiar with, and that is constructive criticism. But then there's what you could call destructive criticism. Constructive criticism and destructive criticism. Constructive criticism is warranted and should be welcomed because it is helpful. It's, it's productive. The constructive critic loves and cares about us, and they are gracious and well-intentioned and sincerely want to help us. The things they say to us or about us are true, and need the things they say need to change us because they point out sinful attitudes or blind spots or imbalances and their goal is to build us up and edify us and make us better and so we should praise and thank God for people who love us enough to speak the truth to our face so we can change and grow more into the likeness of Christ Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 I think, gives us the spirit of constructive criticism. Faithful, what? Are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Also there in Proverbs 27, verse 17, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Another great reference to constructive criticism. But then there's destructive criticism that's unwarranted, it's unwanted because it's unhelpful and unproductive. The destructive critic doesn't love us. They, in fact, hate us and care only about themselves. They're harsh, they're mean-spirited, and they simply want to hurt us. The things they say to us or about us are untrue, and they require no changes in our life. Their goal is to not build us up, but to bring us down and to ruin us and not make our lives better, but make our lives worse. Nevertheless, we should praise and thank God for people who hate us so much that they will spread vindictive scandalous lies behind our backs because no matter how evil intended they may be, God intends it for what? For good. Specifically to change and grow us more into the likeness of Christ. Now it's this latter kind of criticism that I want to talk about because this is the kind of criticism that David had to cope with in this passage. And this is the kind of criticism I think is the hardest for all of us to cope with as well. Few things tend to discourage us or disillusion us or debilitate us more than hostile criticism that is unjustified and untrue. Every one of us, not just pastors, every one of us 
has been falsely accused at some point of doing something we didn't do, saying something we didn't say, or not doing something that we did, or not saying something that we did. And sadly, I think pastors in particular tend to be an insecure bunch whose identity is often based on the approval rating of our congregation. What people think of us or say to us can either brighten our day or can be a downer on our day. And it's no surprise to me that so many pastors confess that criticism is the most difficult challenge in ministry. And sadly, the number one reason why so many pastors end up resigning from the ministry. Well, God knows those of us who live for man's approval and who place too much value on our own reputation. And so he is faithful to send just the right amount of criticism our way to chasten us and change us and make us indifferent to what people think or say about us and ensure that we are truly living and ministering to build Christ's reputation rather than our own reputation. In other words, we get to the place, he, or he gets us to the place, God gets us to the place where we can truly say that our name no longer matters. What matters to us, all that matters to us is Christ's name. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said it this way, quote, he says, if you hear others report this or that ill of you and your hearts are dejected because you think you suffer in your name, your hearts were inordinately set on your name and reputation. We could just close in prayer, right? If you hear something bad said about you and you're dejected because you think you suffer in your name, your hearts were inordinately set on your name and reputation. Well, as I've faced the chastening criticism that God has sent my way to deal with some of those issues in my heart and life, I've been inspired to respond humbly and patiently and tenaciously by keeping before me the example of someone who graciously responded to a ruthless critic and courageously persevered in the midst of a relentless of, of relentless criticism. And I'm referring to David, who serves as an example for not just me, all of us. And here in this text, he modeled six ways to not just survive criticism, but to thrive when facing criticism, not just any criticism, but criticism of the worst kind. Well, let's begin and look at the first way to respond or to not just survive but thrive when facing criticism of the worst kind. Number one, remember it could always be worse. Remember, it could always be worse. Now, since we've just parachuted down in the middle of this book and we find ourselves somewhere in the historical record of the nation of Israel, let me take a moment to get our bearing. Let us take a moment here. We get, get our bearings here. But what has gone on so far? Well, after Moses led the Jews out of Egypt and Joshua led the Jews back into the promised land, the nation of Israel floundered during the time of the judges. And in their minds, the solution was to appoint a king like what? All the other nations. So Samuel anointed Saul as Israel's first king, and Saul was the people's choice. But because he disobeyed, God rejected him as king and chose David to take his place. And as the king elect, David was a threat to the insanely jealous Saul. And he was forced to flee into the wilderness for safety. And while Saul was hunting him down, David had a number of opportunities to kill Saul. Once while he was sleeping in his camp and another time when he was relieving himself in a cave. 
I would like to think that I actually stood inside that cave when I was in Israel. Well, there's too many to choose from, but I stood in the cave and I thought, this is, this is kind of where that could have gone down. But David refused to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and humbly and patiently waited on God to raise him up as king. And even so, Saul just stubbornly refused to relinquish the throne and he tragically ended up committing suicide. And his sons were killed on the battlefield by the Philistines. And after mourning the demise of the Lord's anointed and his son Jonathan, whom David loved, right? He was his best friend. David assumed the throne. And so the book of 2 Samuel chronicles how David's 40-year reign as king brought the nation of Israel to its zenith of power. But then, also how his sins of adultery and murder brought God's judgment upon himself and the entire nation. And even though David repented, as we know, and was restored by God, his glory diminished and his family disintegrated. His newborn son died. His son Amnon raped his sister Tamar and his other son Absalom murdered Amnon and then rebelled against David and led a military revolt against him. And so if you're dividing up the book of 2 Samuel, you could say chapters 1 through 10 are all about the triumphs of David. Chapters 11 and 12 are the transgressions of David And then chapters 13 through 24 are the troubles of David. So we see his success, we see his sin, and then we see his struggles. And so here in chapter 16, David is in the midst of trouble. He's in the midst of, he's experiencing struggles as consequences for his sin. And here he is once again fleeing for his life, but this time he was fleeing from his own son, Absalom. It's hard to think of anything worse than that, right? Being hunted down by your own son. And so we pick up the story in verse 5 here, when King David came to Baharim, which was a town located just east of Jerusalem in the region assigned to the tribe of Benjamin, which if you remember was a tribe that Saul came from. And so many who lived in this town were still loyal to Saul. And one of the loyalists, one of those loyalists was a guy named Shimei, who was a distant relative of Saul and resented David for how he had supposedly mistreated Saul and his sons. And as David and his entourage passed through town, he saw this as his chance to vent his feelings toward him and get his pound of flesh. And so he went on an angry, bitter tirade and cursed David up one side and down the other. Notice it says, when King David came to Bahrim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. And to add injury to insult, it's usually adding insult to injury, but in this case, it's adding injury to insult. Shimei also hurled stones at David and his men. Verse 6, he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. So here's David already having one of the worst days of his life. He woke up to find out his son was leading a coup against him. He also found out that his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, had betrayed him and gone to the side of his son. He had to hastily abandon his home, and now he was escaping to the wilderness yet again. And as if things couldn't get any worse, and as if he needed one more burden to bear, he now was being cursed and pelted with stones by some crazy guy, some disenchanted, disaffected fellow Israelite who had a personal vendetta against David. 
And he felt like he and his family had been wronged by something that he had done or hadn't done. And I think it's, it, it's, it would be helpful just to stop here for a second and, and consider the profile of a destructive critic. Because Shimei provides, I think, a very clear, very chilling profile of what a destructive critic looks like. You may have a Shimei in your life. You say, well, I'm not sure. Well, let me describe them and then see if you've got one, right? This is someone, okay, a Shimei is someone who has an ax to grind against you for some either actual wrong that you've done or oftentimes an imagined wrong. And they're driven by this merciless desire to get even. They're not interested in reconciliation. All they care about is retribution. They want to get back at you and put you through the same kind of pain and grief that they claim that you put them through. They would love nothing more than to see God pour out his wrath on you. That would be the ultimate malicious thought. Let him have it, God. I want to see bad things happen to you. That's malice, right? When, you, when you're bitter, your anger and bitterness gets so deep and so strong that you just want bad things to happen to that person. And so they would love nothing more than to see God pour out his wrath on you, but in the meantime, they want to vent their wrath on you too. That's a destructive critic. Notice what comes out or spews out of Shimei's mouth, verse 7. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. So the first thing I want you to notice is that Shimei called David a worthless fellow. That doesn't sound so bad in our day and age. You're a worthless fellow. You you, you can't do better than that? Come on. Is that all you got? Worthless fellow? I can handle that. Well, that was not what you wanted to be called back then. Because what that term worthless fellow meant was that you were a man of base moral character. This was the expression used to describe the gluttonous, sexually immoral sons of Eli. Remember those guys? People would bring their offering, they'd dig into the meat, and they'd take what they wanted, and then they'd sleep with the woman at the, in the temple, at the door of the temple. This was also used to describe Abigail's brutish husband, Nabal. Remember that guy? Like, Ladies, you ever wonder what it would be like to be married to a knucklehead? Just read the story of Nabal and Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So to call David, who was, according to God, a man after, what? God's own heart, a worthless fellow, a man of base moral character, this was a wildly inaccurate an inappropriate way to describe him. And he went on, Shimei did, to accuse David of being responsible for the death of Saul and all of his sons and illegitimately claiming the throne of Israel for himself, which was just not true. This was totally false. No one was more innocent of the blood of Saul and his family than David. Like I mentioned earlier, he had spared Saul's life twice. Even while Saul was trying to take his life. And the fact that David was miles away from the battlefield where Saul and his sons died and that he sincerely mourned over the death of the Lord's anointed 
didn't seem to matter to Shimei. Shimei simply assumed the worst about David and believed the rumors that were going around that he had a hand in the death of Saul's commander Abner and Saul's one remaining son Ishbosheth, both of whom conspired against David, and yet the writer of 2 Samuel worked very hard to make it clear that David didn't want Abner to be executed. You can read that in 2 Samuel 3.37. And that he, had, he actually had the men killed who murdered Ishbosheth. 2 Samuel chapter 4. So he didn't want any part of those men's death. But as the old saying goes, no good deed goes, what? Unpunished, right? Critics are often misinformed. And typically they don't care about the actual facts. And they rarely attempt to hear the other side of the story before they draw conclusions or cast judgment. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs for a second. Keep your finger there in 2 Samuel. But just look at Proverbs chapter 18, and there's a series of verses here that I think every one of us would do well to remember. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, again, this is wisdom literature, and basically saying, this is wise, and this is foolish, okay? So Proverbs 18, 2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. In other words, a fool doesn't really care about the facts. He doesn't really want to understand. He just wants to tell you what he thinks and what he believes. And then there's verse 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. In other words, if you draw a conclusion before you hear all the facts, you're stupid, and you should be ashamed of yourself. And then verse 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. How many times has that happened, right? Somebody's come to you and, and, and may, moms, maybe it's just one of your little kids. <laughs> mommy, mommy. Johnny did this. And you're like, wow, I'm going to go spank Johnny. Well, then you go find Johnny, and Johnny says, Johnny, you know, Bobby did this. Well, now I'm going to spank both y'all. Right? There's always two sides of the story. And the first one that comes seems right until the other comes and examines them. In other words, until you hear the other side of the story. There's always two sides of a story. Matthew Henry, the, the classic old commentator, said that God gave us two ears for a reason. To remind us that there's always two sides. I've often wanted to, or been tempted often to, post those verses in various places around the internet. Because as you know, in the age of the internet with its blog posts and Google reviews and Yelp reviews and everything reviews and social media, there's been this public forum created, custom fit for criticism that's really unprecedented. It's unlimited. And so people now can just troll anyone, anywhere, anytime, for any reason, with total anonymity and with no accountability. Someone posts an unsubstantiated story that circulates around and everyone piles on with their comments and the rumor mill fabricates some huge conspiracy and pastors and churches and organizations are unfairly scandalized. All because people are not following basic wisdom. To, let's, hear, let's hear it out. Let's, let's hear both sides of the story before we start making comments and posting our opinions 
and our thoughts and our judgments. Back to 2 Samuel. Notice what Shimei has concluded here. The judgment that he has made. He's, he's drawn a conclusion and he's cast a judgment. And here it is. The Lord has returned upon you, verse 8, all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you've, re- you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. So Shimei has, has, has concluded and is claiming here, or was claiming it, all the bad things that were happening to David, the loss of his throne, Absalom's rebellion, was God punishing him for past sins. In other words, he was simply saying, guess what, pal? What goes around comes around. And you're just getting what you deserve, pal. And, and just so you know, it's fun to watch. I, I'm enjoying it. I, I'm just pulling up a front row seat. I got my popcorn and my Coke, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just enjoying this show. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Like most malicious, slanderous accusations, there was just enough truth in what Shimei said to make the accusation sting for David. And almost makes it sound like the shoe fits. And so David better wear it. And so while David was blameless in regards to the things that Shimei was accusing him of, he knew he was a man of bloodshed. Even God himself had told him, I don't know if he had told him by now or he would tell him in the near future, but that he couldn't build the temple because he was a man of war and he had what? Blood on his hands. First Chronicles 28.3. But David also knew that he was blameworthy of having Uriah killed. Which, by the way, Shimei never mentioned. But David was guilty of having Uriah murdered to cover up the fact that his wife Bathsheba was pregnant with David's child. And when Nathan confronted David about his sin of adultery and murder. He told David that as a result of his sin, the sword would never leave his house and the members of his family would commit even greater acts of sin. Basically, Nathan said to David, hey, you, what you did, your sexual sin in secret, your, your son's going to commit some sexual sin in broad daylight with all of your, with all of your harem." Which he did. So all that to say, David knew that this was all part of God's chastening. And that he deserved everything and anything that he had coming to him. He, he indicates that if in, in one statement he makes in his great prayer of repentance, Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, Lord, I messed up. I sinned against you and and I know I deserve to be punished. It's like a little kid showing up to his dad and you know, saying, Dad, I, I, I stole some money out of your wallet and, and uh, I know it was wrong and, 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 oh, by the way, Dad, here's your belt <laughs> because I know that that's what I deserve. And so he knew he had it coming. 
and that he was simply reaping what he had sown, and the stones that Shimei flung at him only added to David's guilt. You see what he's talking about? Well, I think it's interesting to consider that by throwing stones at David, Shimei was symbolically stoning David according to the Old Testament law, which stated that anyone who sheds blood should have their what? Blood shed by being stoned to death. Leviticus chapter 24. But David also knew that the Old Testament law commanded that not just murderers were to be stoned, but who else was supposed to be stoned? Adulterers were to be stoned as well. Deuteronomy chapter 22. David knew his sins warranted the double death penalty, if there was such a thing. There's such a thing as double life in prison, right? Well, that's nothing compared to double death penalty. I don't know how you do it. It's impossible. Kill a guy twice. Inject him, lethal injection twice. The point is he deserved to die twice. But God had mercifully spared his life. And so David knew that Shimei's grievance, as bad as it was, could have been much worse if he had thrown in the whole adultery thing. And so I think this just helped keep things in perspective for David, that it could have been worse. For all the difficulties he was going through, all the false accusations he was facing, he knew he was guilty of far greater sins than the imagined sins he was being accused of, and that he deserved much worse. He was still alive. So why should he complain about someone spewing some lies about him or slinging some stones and dirt at him. I could just hear David turn into his mighty men and they're like, hey, Dave, how you, you doing all right, Dave? You, Dave, Dave, you all right, buddy? I know this is kind of rough. Shimei is kind of beating up on you. Are you all right? And he simply says, hey, man, I'm better than I deserve. <laughs> we say that, right? When... Uh, Silly things happen to us. Well, you know, all that kind of stinks, but hey, better than I deserve. I'm better than I deserve. Hey, that's a, that's a profound theological statement right there. Because that's true all the time, because what do all of us deserve? Death and hell. So if we're alive and we're on our way to heaven then we are way better than we deserve. And it could, literally, it, it, it could be way worse. Way, 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 way worse. A dear friend, um, a few years back, passed along a quote from Spurgeon that I've never forgotten and I've actually printed it out and put it up on a wall, my wall uh, by my desk at home. And I think this, this version really captures this idea that, remember, it could always be worse. This is what Spurgeon said, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Spurgeon say. Hey, buck up, man. You know it's true. If somebody thinks ill of you, don't get mad at him because you know you're worse than he actually knows you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. So if he says, hey, you're this, you're like, yeah, you're right. 
See ya. <laughs> Don't want you to start getting to know me more because you could say a whole lot worse things than what you just said. And then he said this, if you have your moral portrait painted and it's ugly, be satisfied for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. Maybe some of you have been portrayed by others in a not so beautiful light. The portrait that they've concocted of you is is really ugly. Well, you know what? A few blacker touches would probably be more appropriate that would maybe even provide a more accurate reflection of who you really are. So be content with that ugly looking portrait because it could always be worse. Amen? Well, I'm thankful that I don't have to prepare a sermon on a plane on the way home in two weeks because we're just going to come back and go to number two. (laughs) So you're going to have to uh, wait two weeks to figure out the rest of the story here. But I would encourage you to be reading through it, meditating on it, and um, maybe drawing some of these conclusions yourself as you kind of read ahead and see where we're going with this, but hopefully this will be an encouragement. To, hopefully this was an encouragement to you this morning as it was for me to prepare it. And again, I, I think, I think um, this is the one message I'm most excited, most looking forward to teaching pastors halfway around the world. Because when you get, into a, get in a room of pastors, this will preach. This will preach. So thank you for letting me preach it to you to warm me up for South Africa. Father, we're grateful for just this simple little Old Testament story that we could just quickly skim over, but boy, it's rich, it's deep. There's lots of really helpful, insightful things here. And I pray that just this one little point about it could always be worse that would really resonate in our hearts and our minds would give us the perspective that maybe we've lost. Lord, that we would respond like David did, humbly, just with a humble, broken and contrite heart, not trying to defend himself or retaliate. He was in no position to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly come to grips with with that statement, what it really means that we are better than we deserve. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.